for that. John chapter 14, and we'll be looking just at three verses today, verses 12, 13, and 14. But for the sake of context, let's get a, a running start and begin reading in verse 9. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Verse 12, Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Who had or has the greater advantage? The disciples who walked with Jesus while He was on earth. They heard His sermons with their own ears. They saw Him with their own eyes. They ate meals with Him. They could approach Him at any time with any question. Or do we, with our corporate worship, our personal Bible study, our obedience to Scripture, our prayer, do we have the greater advantage? Now we're wired to think that if we can see or touch something, then naturally it's better than whatever we have to accept by faith. And if we're honest, I'm sure most of us have at some point said, Man, I wish I could be with Jesus. I wish He could be here with me right now, just like He was with the disciples. I'm sure we've all thought that. As we come back to John chapter 14... You'll remember that Jesus has told His disciples that He is leaving. This is their last night together before His crucifixion. Judas has already gone out of the room. He's gone to betray Jesus. Jesus has this last special evening with the eleven, His true disciples. And as we've already seen Him begin to do, Jesus is making promises to His disciples in order to comfort them and to prepare them for the time that they will, have, they will not have Him with them. And in fact, we'll see that once He's explained to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, He actually says in chapter 16, verse 7, It is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage The things that Jesus has promised 
that will come to pass after He leaves makes things better for His followers than when He was here. Do you believe that? Let me say it another way. It's important that you hear it. Since Jesus has ascended into heaven and is no longer with us, and since He has given us all that He has promised us, it is actually better for us as His followers, that He is not here with us physically. We've already seen this with His promise at the beginning of the chapter. Remember verse 3, He says, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again to receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He can't fulfill the promise of having a place prepared and coming to get us if He doesn't go away. It's because He has gone to prepare a place for those who believe in Him that we reap the benefit of Him coming again to take us there. It's to our advantage that He has gone away. And as we continue on through this discourse, this upper room discourse, we'll see other promises that Jesus makes to His disciples and subsequently to us. So while we may think that it's better for Jesus to be on earth with us. In reality, He has made promise to us, promises to us that make His not being here work to our advantage. Now as we come back to our passage, Jesus is leading up to the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what a promise that is. But for today, I want us to consider two other promises that He makes first. They're in your bulletin, right in the sermon title. Great works and guaranteed prayers. Great works and guaranteed prayers. Let's consider each of them. Number one, great works. Jesus says, most assuredly. We've seen that phrase before. Truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you. It's a clear cut. Hey guys, this is important. Listen up. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who, what? Believes in me. That's the condition for any promise that God makes to his followers. Faith, trust in him. See, we can talk about God's promises all we want, but they don't apply to just anybody. Not everyone can benefit from the promises that God has made. These are gifts of grace that are given only to those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Remember what he said to Thomas in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To believe in Jesus is to acknowledge that He was telling the truth. That He is the way of salvation in God. The only way. And putting all your faith and all your trust in only Him. These promises are only for those who have been born again. So here's one of these promises, verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. 
Now, I'll be honest with you. I had a hard time with that verse. (laughs) What does he mean that whoever believes in Jesus will do the works that Jesus does? What works? And then what does he mean that the believer will do greater works? How could we ever do greater works than what Jesus did? So let me do my best with you here. Let me, let me tell you one thing that it doesn't mean, and then I'll tell you what I think it does mean, based on the context. Here's what it doesn't mean. Jesus doesn't mean that every believer will do the same miracles that Jesus did, plus some. There are those who take this verse to mean that every single follower of Jesus has the power to do everything that Jesus did and more. It goes like this. Jesus said, the works that I do, He will do also. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus fed 5,000. Jesus made crippled to walk. Jesus made deaf to hear, blind to see, and He raised the dead. Therefore... I believe in Jesus so I can do all of those things too and some. That's how some take this verse. There are at least a couple of problems with that. Let me give you two. One, the Apostle Paul was clear that not everyone has the same gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, after discussing the variety of gifts in the church, Paul says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the implied answer to all of those questions is, no, not everyone can do those things. God did not give every gift that He ever gave to every believer. Rather, we each have our own unique set of gifts that God has granted us so that we may each do our part in building up the body as a whole. If I had every single spiritual gift, I would not need you. If you had every single spiritual gift, you would not need me or anyone else in this church. We would be fine to be islands all to ourselves. But God has made us in such a way that we complement each other with our own gifts. And where I fall short, you pick up the slack. Where you fall short, I pick up the slack. And together, we do exactly what God's called us to do. And we can't do it unless we're together. There is no Christian life outside of the body of Christ, outside of the church. Those who say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. I can be a Christian and worship at home and be everything that God wants me to be, but I don't have to go to church. That's baloney. That's Hebrew. (laughs) A second problem I have with that interpretation, this is a big one, only the apostles were ever commissioned to do miracles. And they're all dead. The miracles were given as signs to validate the message that the apostles preached. And as the Word of God spreads, when you read the book of Acts, you'll see that the miracles get fewer and further between until they're no longer seen. Go read the book of Acts. You'll read and you'll see miracles and miracles and preaching and preaching and miracles and preaching and preaching. And eventually you say, you know, I haven't seen a miracle in a while. Because the word of God spread, they had already attested that the fact that they were preaching Jesus was true. Now that we have the word of God, its validity has already been put to the test. There is no more need for miraculous signs. 
We have a sufficient book. It's been put to the test and proven faithful. Can God still do miracles? Of course He can. Does God still do miracles? Yes. Rarely. We overuse that word, miracles. God can and He does, but it is not His normative way of acting. You don't need a miracle. You can trust His Word. And if you can't bring yourself to trust the Word of God that has stood, since, it's, since the church's inception, the church has stood on the Bible, on God's Word, doesn't it seem a little arrogant to think that God should give you some unique sign to prove Himself to you? You can't just trust the book that He's given everyone. You don't need a miracle. I think there's some obvious problems with that interpretation of John 14, 12. So that's what it doesn't mean. Here's what I think it means. The works that I do, He will do also. Just as Jesus did all His works to point people to the Father, so will the works that Jesus' followers do point people to God. I think that's clear when you pair it with verse 11, right? Context, three rules of Bible interpretation. Context, context, and context. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The works that Jesus did revealed God the Father to the world. And when He left, His followers took on that same task. We do works to reveal God to the world. This is to be the normal life for every Christian. This is typical Christian living, according to Jesus. What's the difference in a Christian good work and an atheist good work? What's the difference in a Christian good work and a Mormon good work? What's the difference in a biblical Christian's good work and a Catholic's good work? The difference is this. The Christian does good works so that he or she may lead others into fellowship with God. Good deeds for the sake of doing good deeds are worthless. So what if their belly is full if they still go to hell? So what if they have a clean toothbrush if they don't know God? Good deeds in the world benefit their life for the moment, and we should do those. But we do those so that we may be able to lead them into fellowship with God. Good deeds that open the door to share the message of Jesus is what the Christian lives for. This is what we do. And he says, and greater works than these he will do. How is that? How could the works that we do ever be greater than the works that Jesus did? And I think the answer is not necessarily found in the kind of work, but greater in its extent, the extent of the work. Think about it. It really makes sense if you just think for a second. When Jesus was on earth in His bodily form, He was only ever in one place at one time. 
Because he was a man, just like we were, just like we are. But since he left, and since his Holy Spirit now indwells each and every person who has ever put their trust in him, now the work isn't limited to one place at one time to one group of people, but the work has spread throughout the whole world. It's a greater work. Now, we may not reach multitudes as individuals. I will probably never reach thousands or millions. There are only so many Billy Grahams or George Whitfields or, you know. But as a body of Christians spread throughout the whole world, we have reached and are reaching millions. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached one sermon and 3,000 people were saved. Think about it. The very first sermon ever preached in the history of the Christian church, more people were saved than in the entire ministry of Jesus. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and people are still being saved. There are thousands of people right now doing the exact same thing that I'm doing and preaching the Word of God. And hundreds of thousands or millions are hearing it right now this morning. This is a greater work. And what greater work could there ever be than that God should reach down to a sinner who is lost and rebellious and on his way to hell and convert him and make him a saint Give him a new heart with new desires and set him on the road to eternal life. There is no greater work. Now, I said that this was a promise. How is, how is this a promise? It kind of sounds like I'm just telling you to go do something, right? Look how verse 12 ends. It says, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because... I go to my Father. Because Jesus ascended into heaven and sent us the Holy Spirit, He now rules over His church and from His throne in heaven flows all power to do the works that He's called us to do. Here's the promise. Every single Christian will be able to do the work of leading people to God because Christ Himself is ruling from heaven and has given us the heavenly power that is necessary to do the work He's called us to do. That's the promise. You say, I want to, but I can't. And Jesus says, I can through you. You say, well, that's for pastors and evangelists and super spiritual people. And Jesus says, this is my promise to who? To he who believes in me. Everyone who believes in Jesus, he gives the power to do the works that he's called you to do in revealing the Father to the world. You can share the gospel because He gives you the power to do it. You can make disciples because He gives you the power to do it. You can be a faithful servant and a witness in your community because He gives you the power to do it. That's the promise. 
of great works. I think it's natural then to ask, how do we how do we receive this power? How do we do the great works that God's called us to do? How do we get the confidence that we need? How do we tap in, if you will, to this power that God has promised to do the work? I think that leads us to the next promise. Number two, guaranteed prayers. Verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That sort of sounds like a blank check, doesn't it? (laughs) Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Really? Anything? All I have to do is ask it in your name? That's what he said. Now all we have to establish is what he means by in my name. Right? Again, these verses are so abused that I I feel the need to tell you what they don't mean before we discuss what they do mean. To pray in Jesus' name isn't a formula that you tack onto a prayer to make sure it gets answered. In Jesus' name isn't the lamp that you rub to get the genie to come out. Jesus' name isn't the coin that goes into the vending machine before you make your selection. To say in Jesus' name, in your prayer, isn't a kind of open sesame that gets God's attention. And Jesus certainly isn't saying that if you pray in His name, He'll give you a new Mercedes, a million dollar house, a beautiful wife, a promotion and a raise, and bring your dead dog back to life. He's just not. Saying the words in Jesus' name isn't some necessary phrase that we have to add to the end of our prayers to make it valid. And that's kind of how I grew up thinking about in Jesus' name. It's not a real prayer. It doesn't count if you don't say in Jesus' name at the end. Now, it's a good thing to say. I say it. I'm teaching my kid to say it. But there's no special power in just saying the words in Jesus' name. So what does it mean then to ask something of God in Jesus' name? What's he talking about? Let me give you two answers to that. One, praying in Jesus' name means recognizing that we come to God on Jesus' merit and not our own. Praying in Jesus' name is recognizing that we can come to God on Jesus' merit and not our own. Remember he said what he said in verse 6, No one comes to the Father except through me. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are coming to God acknowledging that we have absolutely nothing to offer God, but that we can only come to Him because of Jesus. God, I know I don't deserve anything from you. You are holy. I am not in myself. I'm a sinner that could never approach you, much less less ask anything from you. But Jesus can. 
He is holy. He is perfect. He is righteousness. And He said I could come. I could never afford admission into the throne room of God, but Jesus paid for it with His own blood, and He let me in. I come to you, not in my own name, but in the name of Jesus who brought me here. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. We can only come because of Jesus. Number two, praying in Jesus' name means that we pray in alignment with the character and nature of Christ and His will. Praying in Jesus' name means that we pray in alignment with the character and nature of Christ and His will. This is where you lose the folks who always pray for material blessing. To pray in the name of Jesus means you pray the way that Jesus would pray and ask for the things that Jesus would ask for. That's actually a little scary when you think of it that way. In a way, it might even make you not want to pray. How, how could I ever pray the way Jesus would pray? How am I supposed to know what Jesus would ask for in my situation? How do I pray like this? How do I pray in Jesus' name? Can I tell you there's an easy answer to that question? It may not always be clear and cut and dry, but there is an easy answer. If you want to know what Jesus would pray, look at what Jesus did pray. You know how you do that? You guessed it. Has it ever occurred to you that I might want you all to read your Bibles? I think very highly of this book. If you want to know how Jesus would pray, then read how Jesus did pray. Those of you who have been here on Wednesday nights know that we've been considering this very thing. We looked recently at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, and just this morning we read it here. What's the first petition in the Lord's Prayer? What's the first thing Jesus asks for? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a request. Do you know what that means? In other words, our Father in heaven, may your name be regarded as holy. We can pray that over any situation. If you want to pray like Jesus would pray, then you need to pray with an interest in the glory of God. Because what's Jesus' purpose statement, if you will? Everybody stops before they get to the end of verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That, in order that... For this reason, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus is interested in God being glorified. And if you want to pray like Jesus, if you want to pray prayers that get answered, then you need to pray for the glory of God as well. 
Lord, I would love to see my kids go to college, to do well, to get a good job, marry a loving spouse, not have to struggle in life. I ask you to do that for them. But God, above all, may your name be regarded as holy in their lives. I pray that you would be glorified in their lives. Not my will, but yours be done. You ever remember Jesus praying that? Father in heaven, I know that you have the power to heal. I have a family member. I have a friend who is sick. I pray that you would bring healing to their body. I know you can. Please make them well. And whatever you decide to do, Lord, may your name be regarded as holy. Be glorified in this situation. Friends, if we pray like that, with the heart of our prayers being that God would be glorified and that His name would be hallowed, we have a guarantee from Jesus. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Does that mean He's going to do everything you want Him to do? Mm -mm. That sort of, sort of strips us of our pride, doesn't it? Praying like that. Prayer's not about you, is it? It's not about me. Prayer is about dependence on God and bringing glory to Him. He's not going to do everything we want Him to do, no, because sometimes we want things that are sinful, don't we? And sometimes we ask for things that aren't inherently sinful, but we might ask selfishly. Or we ask, you know, for the thing that might be good, but it's not our greatest good. And God knows what our greatest good is. But if we will ask God to conform our hearts and our minds to that of our Lord Jesus... And if we spend time in the Word of God and allow the words of Scripture to shape our prayers, and if we come to God and ask anything, recognizing that we only come because of Jesus, we pray in alignment with the character and will of Jesus, we have a guarantee that He will do whatever we ask. Let me conclude with a question and a challenge. You see, Jesus said these things and John wrote them down for the benefit of every Christian who would ever live and every church that would ever exist. But I'm talking to one church this morning. I get to talk to the wonderful people of Simmons Grove. I love you guys. I really do. I want to make sure you know something. John 14, 12 through 14, and the promises recorded therein are no less available to you than they were to the disciples who sat in the same room with Jesus on that night. When Jesus says, He who believes in me, He's talking about each one of you who have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone. If you have, these promises are yours. They are your promises. 
He's promised that you will do great works through Him and for Him. You will do good deeds and tell the message of Jesus if you believe these promises and act on them. And when he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, he really does mean anything that you ask in his name. It's your promise. So here's my question. Why would we not take him up on this? Why would we not set out to do the great work that God has promised we will do? Why would we not serve our community? Why would we not tell others the good news about Jesus? Why would we not make disciples? Why would we not pray? Why would we not ask Him to do the impossible in our church, in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world? He knows we need His help. Why would we not pray for a spiritual awakening right here in our own area? And then set out to do the work He's called us to do. And that's my question. Why would we not take God up on His promises? Here's my challenge. Work and pray. Let's be diligent to regularly cry out to God on behalf of our church, on one another who is in this body and our community, on behalf of our nation and our world. Let us pray. Then let's step out of our doors and engage in the work that God's promised He's going to do through us. Just be faithful. God has made His promise. And you heard last week, God keeps His promises. If you're here and you've not been born again, this doesn't apply to you. You don't have these promises. There's only one prayer that you need to pray, and that's the prayer of the publican, right? God be merciful to me, a sinner. You have broken God's law. You've offended Him. You deserve His judgment. But He sent His Son to die for you. So that if you repent and put your trust in Him, He will save you. Paul said, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There's a promise you can have. And if you do, He will do that great work in you of taking your lost and hardened heart and replacing it with a soft and a tender heart that loves God and loves His people. God will make you a new creation. And that's a promise. Promises, promises. We can be confident. God always keeps His promises. Amen. Stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through Him that we can come to you.
And we desire to pray in alignment with your will, Lord, and what you've revealed in your word. I pray for those who are lost. Lord, you have said that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So, Lord, on the basis of that truth, and claiming the promise that you said, if we ask anything in your name, you will do it. I pray for whoever is here that is lost, that they would be saved. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to do those things you've called us to do. To serve, to preach, and to make disciples. To start right here in our own building and then in our own community and reaching out throughout the whole world. Lord, I ask for an awakening that the lost would be saved and that those who are saved would be so burdened for the lost and for the need to fulfill your commandments that they would be compelled to obey you. May we be a faithful people who work and pray and rest in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.